0: Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit perkinscoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie's White Collar and Investigations attorneys Marcus Funk and Chelsea Kerfman interview special guest Carolyn McMitchin, Global Ethics and Compliance Chief for Molson Coors Beverage Company, about the hallmarks of a successful internal investigation. Topics discussed include tips for outside counsel on how best to be an effective partner in internal investigations, as well as predictions regarding how the current pandemic and related economic challenges may change the structure of internal investigations in the future. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the first installment of our White Collar Briefly mini-pod, co-sponsored by the ABA's Global Anti-Corruption Committee. Today, we're going to be joined by a true subject matter expert and a friend of the show, Molson Coors Brewing Company's outstanding global ethics and compliance chief Carolyn McMitchin. But like all things in the law, we have to reiterate a short disclaimer, uh, the same one you heard at the outset, which is that Carolyn's not going to be speaking about any cases or her prior positions, and neither are we. Rather, we're only going to be discussing best practices that she's observed in her career. So before we start uh, the show and we get to the star of the show, by way of brief introduction, I'm Marcus Funk. I'm a former federal prosecutor, now happily serving as the firm-wide chair of Perkins Cooey's mighty and powerful white-collar and investigations practice.
0: And I'm Chelsea Kerfman. I am also a partner in the White Collar Investigations practice at Perkins Coie in the Denver office. And Marcus and I also co-teach at the University of Colorado Law School on a course covering uh, anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance and supply chain compliance as well.
1: Oh, buffs! Yeah.
0: <laughs> so to uh, to introduce our guest for the day, um, Carolyn, it's it's nice to hear from you today.
2: Hi, everyone, and and thanks, uh, Marcus and Chelsea, for letting me join. You're very welcome. We're happy to have you.
0: To kick it off, before we get into the substance of the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I know, as Marcus noted, you are the Global Ethics and Compliance Chief for Molson Coors. Um, but if you could tell us a little bit about kind of how you came to Molson Coors and, and your professional background uh, leading to your current role.
2: I do have a little bit of a unique, I think, journey into the role of of ethics and compliance officer for Molson Coors in that unlike many of my peers, I'm not an attorney. Um, I'm an accountant by education and and began my career in internal auditing in both financial services and manufacturing industries. Um, I spent 18 years in internal auditing before moving into the ethics and compliance space Um, I think that that experience was incredibly helpful for me is that you learn a great deal about business, business processes, internal controls. We work with risk assessment. So they're very similar, um, processes and skills in the internal audit function as, as would bring, you would bring into the ethics and compliance function. Um, I moved into ethics and compliance just around, um, the Sarbanes-Oxley days. Um, as Molson Coors was looking to improve their um, program overall. Um, I wrote the code of conduct at that time um, in a way that we thought Better suited the company's values and its culture. The previous code of conduct had been written by some of attorneys in house and and kind of kept in a drawer and wasn't um, widely used and, and didn't really resonate with employees as a resource. So um, that was the first thing I did, and then that brought me into um, the the ethics and compliance function, which really was just born at that time in our company. Um, and from there, um, built the program from scratch, and um, it's been an incredibly exciting journey. I think um, uh, there's never a dull moment. There's always a new challenge, um, and I it's been, you know, especially exciting watching the profession grow along with me in that in that space, you know, early on, there was just a few of us, and um, we'd get together at various networking meetings. And now, you know, it's a it's a very big profession and um, has has brought a lot of value, I think, to companies.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, it's been fun for us to work when we've worked with you in the past to, to see sort of that experience come to play and how you handle, you know, risks and things that come up. Um, because you do have more of that, that back background on how the business works uh, coming, you know, not coming from the legal side, it's been kind of neat to see how that plays in. Um, But in addition to sort of that, the substantive piece that that coming from the, you know, the accounting and finance and auditing side gives you are there are there other qualities or um, you know, skill sets that you think help someone in your role that help make a good compliance officer?
2: Yeah, I think I think compliance folks can come from lots of different disciplines as long as they have some of the key characteristics that I think make you successful in the role. And that's, you know, being a really good communicator at all levels of the organization, being trustworthy and credible, being someone that can influence people at all levels of the organization, being a collaborator, I think, um, you know, coming from the audit background, I had to work closely with, you know, business leaders um, all across the organization to um, remedy, you know, control issues or, or things of that nature. and And you bring that same skill set as we're talking about potential compliance gaps, um working with them to develop solutions that make sense for the business that mitigate the risk according to our risk appetite but are also practical and easy for employees to follow. Um, so I think, you know, those are, you know, obviously you need to be an analytical thinker and and have some um, some background in I think analyzing risks and, and developing mitigation programs. But I think some of those other I guess, um, you know, personality traits of of really being um, an effective communicator and influencer are probably even more important. I agree with that.
0: (laughs) Um, And it's certainly helpful as outside counsel to have someone who has some of those personality traits. Uh, it, It helps us do our job as well.
2: Yeah, and I would just say that, you know, even though I don't have that legal background, I certainly rely very heavily on my business partners internal to the company and external to the company. So, you know, um, those on the legal team internally are there to support and provide advice and guidance as are, you know, our outside counsel, such as yourselves who we consider very trusted advisors to help us in continuously improving our program and making sure we're addressing risks as they come about.
0: And I kind of want to pick up on that. It's probably a good point to transition to our focus of today's conversation, which is, you know, the sort of the hallmarks of a successful internal investigation. Um, And to, to sort of start from the baseline, you know, one thing as outside counsel that I'm always curious about is, You know on from the in-house position how do you decide when you need to start an investigation in the first place and and then kind of the second piece when you need to bring in someone like outside counsel to help
2: you know we have a a very specific protocol or, or guidelines um, documented that sort of make sure that we address that consistently across the organization. Obviously, you know, issues can come up through a variety of channels, whether it be our hotline or what we call our helpline in the organization, through internal audit work, through employees just walking into, you know, their HR um, representative and, and raising a concern. Um, as those concerns come into us, you know, we have um, a triage process, uh, which involves cross-functional folks from internal audit, from ethics and compliance, from human resources, and from legal, to take a look at the issue that's raised and make a determination about how best to investigate that, um, and you know, there's several criteria that you know we want to consider in that process. Obviously, we want to make sure that we have the expertise that we need um, in order to do a, an effective investigation. That we have adequate independence and objectivity, um, and and if necessary, we have, you know, privilege. So when we look at those kinds of things, you know, we think about is this issue potentially an indicator that the company may have violated a law? Um, in that case, then we're obviously going to look to outside counsel to partner with us in the investigation to make sure we have adequate expertise, to make sure we have adequate guidance, and that we have the attorney-client privilege, if needed, down the road. Um, You know, for things that are, you know, um, maybe fraud cases internal to the company, T&E violations, um, some things of those natures, which don't indicate, perhaps, you know, a regulatory issue, you know, we'll handle those internally with an investigation team that's made up of the people we feel are best suited to handle that type of issue.
1: And sort of building on on that, and I know both in your role at Molson Coors and, and your prior roles, you've seen the world, traveled the world, have operations all over the world, and have had to deal with a lot of attorneys, so apologies for that. <laughs> and one of the things we always wonder, right, is is sort of how, how are we, are we being effective? Are we being irritating when we reach out, particularly at the beginning of a relationship with a client, you know, um, when you don't know. Uh, the folks on the other end as well you don't really know what their their kind of style is and what their expectations are and so one of the questions we always have from an outside perspective is well what are the things that we all do that are super irritating or or at times super helpful and you know we we our firm and other firms send client surveys out again all trying to figure out you know what it is that we're doing right or wrong or could improve on and so um, uh in your experience with all sorts of attorneys all over the world, from all sorts of law firms, have you picked up some, <laughs> and be charitable to us, uh, <laughs> attorneys, but uh, I'm sure you have a couple of very candid opinions about attorneys, which we probably share. But uh, what, what's your sense of sort of what attorneys outside counsel do, especially white collar counsel, obviously here? Um, that, again, is is sort of really great and and, or really not great at all. And that really gets under your skin and under your colleague's skin.
2: I think you use the word relationship, Marcus, which is really critical. I think you have to build that relationship and and so that um, when the time comes for something that's maybe a little more urgent, um, there's there's an understanding about how you're going to work together. Um, I think, you know, when you ask about some of the things that can be a little bit frustrating, I think, you know, as somebody who doesn't have a legal background, when I work with an attorney who sort of assumes because I I don't have that legal background that maybe I can't add value to the discussion or to the investigation process, that's a little bit frustrating. Um, What, what, you know, I've found in, and you and Chelsea um, is, you know, people who are willing to sort of listen and have that exchange, so that you know everybody can raise their point of view. For me, in my role, um, it's really important for me that I fully understand the investigation process. Um, you know how we arrived at conclusions. You know, I I want to be bought into it, so that when I have to talk to senior management or our audit committee, or our external auditors, I'm confident that you know we've done the right thing. So I feel it's important that I'm part of that. Um, so I think you know, making sure that, as outside counsel, yes, obviously we've come to you because you're experts, and and we want your advice and guidance, but we also want to participate in that. And I think you know being willing to listen and to educate us, and also to learn from us, is is really a positive thing. Um, another thing I think you know that that you see sometimes are um, attorneys who are just unwilling to give you. You know, their opinion because they're so concerned about the risk associated with that. So, you know, they can give you both ends of the spectrum and kind of leave it up to you when you're really looking for some educated advice based on their experience, whether they've had similar cases and, you know, that they've had to deal with the government or anything, anything that they can bring to the table to help you make your decision. We know it's our decision to make at the end of the day, but. We want to be guided in a way that um, makes sense. And and so when you get an attorney who you just can't pin down to an opinion, that can be really frustrating as well.
1: You know, and a, a follow up on that is, especially during this time of COVID, we uh, are all and I, I think I can speak for the entire legal industry are looking at business development opportunities, how do we get to know clients or get to know clients better? We have colleagues whose primary approach to business development is, for example, hosting dinner parties, which obviously are out of the question now, and, and, and getting to know people sort of in, on a personal level, uh, going to plays or whatever. Others do CLEs and and podcasts uh, like we're doing here. Some do um, uh, articles, right? Write a lot of articles and send them to potential clients or existing clients. Have you, when you kind of think about how you get to know new counsel and how you, how someone kind of and of course we uh you know we we love Molson Coors and hope you never go on a date with anyone else but um <laughs> but uh, but just in general terms are there things that that lawyers do that really catch your attention in a positive way and i guess the flip side and we worry about that with all the covid articles that come out every day are there things that attorneys do to try to get to know potential clients or people they've just met in a way that actually really is off-putting to you
2: i don't know that i've had anything really off-putting the things that i guess suppliers generally do that i find off-putting and i haven't seen this really in the legal field as much is just completely hounding you with emails and and trying to make it look like they're replying to your email <laughs> um, mm-hmm. when in fact it's a cold call <laughs> that that's a little bit off-putting to me um, I think what i've found most helpful in building a relationship is you know and and i think it's something that we can do in this covid era as well is really, you know, having conversations, you know, talking, you know, before there's an emergent issue, right? H- having conversations about risks in the business, understanding, you know, me bringing the business aspect, you bringing the legal aspect, um, helping us to get to a place of what we think is maybe, um, you know, fits with our risk appetite, um, advising us on, you um, potential new risks that come up, like in the case of us, you know, maybe a new product creates a new um, set of risks or a new geography that we want to go into a new business partner. Um, Also, I think, um, you know, I've invited Um, you and also other attorneys that we work with to come in and have like training sessions and open Q&As with my team. Um, I know they've found that incredibly valuable, you know, because you can share your perspective across lots of different companies, um, give us best practices, help us see where we may have opportunities for improve. Um, I know whenever we've done that, I think the team has really, really appreciated it. And I think that you know, that shows that you're invested in us as well. Um, I think, you know, obviously the in-person, you know, opportunities are great and, and ideal, but those are things that we can still try to do um, in the current environment in a virtual kind of way. Um, but to me, it's, it's building that relationship, having you be a sounding board, having you make recommendations or share um, practices um, so that you're, you're there for us in a proactive kind of way. And then when it comes time, if unfortunately we have an emergent situation, we already have a really good understanding of each other and how we work together, what the company's um, kind of culture is and and things that might impact the way we go about an investigation.
1: And not to monopolize you here, but uh, just one question that just occurred to me, which is, you know, in this, in the COVID era, we're, we're all thinking about how does our day to day change? How do we do investigations? What does the future hold? And I'm not going to ask you to answer any questions about any, any particular things you've got going on, but just in general terms, as you look at sort of y- the, your ability to do your job today and frankly, where you see maybe changes in how compliance officers um, and for that matter, in-house legal departments do their work and interact with outside counsel, Maybe beginning with the, that first question, which is, you know, as you think about how you're doing your job today versus, you know, three months ago, how, how, is it, how has it changed? And then maybe you can give some, you know, put put, put the crystal ball in front of you and uh, and see where you think um, the industry is, is headed uh, in light of all the restrictions that we all are um, living under.
2: Yeah, I think travel is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, you know, for me, I find it incredibly valuable to visit all the places that, you know, we have responsibility for. Even if we have local compliance support in a particular region, I think, you know, it. I do my job better if I understand the business and I understand the culture and I know the people in that area. I think that helps me from a risk assessment standpoint. It helps me from a program improvement standpoint. Um, it helps me from a trust standpoint for people to know who I am and and know they can come to me with issues. Um, so I think that plus live training, you know we we did quite a bit of travel to do live training. You know, we do, online training um, to give everybody sort of a baseline of what they need to know and understand about a particular risk area. But really nothing beats those kind of open dialogue live training sessions where people can ask you questions on the fly. Um, And so I think that's going to continue to be a challenge. Um, And I think we're going to have to rely more heavily on local or regional resources um, to provide that sort of hands-on approach, um, and I think, you know, you know, I don't have the answers yet, but I, I see that as, as a challenge going forward, um, as far as investigations go, I know, um, you know, some folks have, uh, worked with sort of recording, um, Teams calls and, and doing interviews that way, um, you know, again, I think it it loses something, but it's definitely better than just a phone call because you can see the person, you can see their reactions, you can pick up on body language to some extent. Um, so I think that's a, it's a, you know, a reasonable solution in the short term. Um, I don't think it's something I'd want to do forever um, or I'd want to do in all cases. But I think in, in some cases, it, it's a reasonable measure. Um So those are some of the things that just off the top of my head come to mind that I think are going to change the way we do things going forward. And I think it's going to require, you know, for people who maybe weren't already taking a very risk-based approach to their program and how they allocate their resources, they're probably going to have to do that even more in this environment. That's what I you know, off the top of my head, what I would share.
0: Yeah. And to to sort of bring that back full circle, you know, that the the topic of Doing interviews and things remotely, you know, as outside counsel when we're helping with investigations, there really is nothing that nothing better than actually sitting down with someone in person mm-hmm. to do an interview. Um, you, you know, you they can be done obviously by video, but you just don't get quite the same uh, level of information, level of engagement that you get in person. Um, you know, so f- from an investigative standpoint, especially when we're we're talking, you know, outside counsel being involved, um, you know, do you see kind of going forward, these local ethics and compliance resources being kind of drawn into that process more to help uh, if we are kind of in an extended work from home standpoint?
2: I think that maybe it's going to mean that the local ethics and compliance resources need to be elevated to some extent, and we need to make sure you know they have the right reporting relationships the right skill sets i think in some cases you know people use ethics and compliance champions around the world and sometimes those people are are doing that in addition to their day job or mm-hmm. you know they're just helping out on you know training but maybe they don't get involved in investigative situations i think we're going to have to rethink you know how how we staff Um, the team and the program to make sure um, we have the right skill sets um, in, you know, closer proximity to where issues might arise. Um, And I do think, you know, that may mean uh, outside counsel works with local outside counsel Mm -hmm. too, to make sure that, you know, somebody could be there if we need people to be there and, and we're not comfortable, you know, traveling across the world to do that. So, um, I think there's a lot to be considered in that space. Um, and, um, I, I think we're just kind of dipping our toe into it now and we'll see how things go because I agree with you. I don't think anything kind of takes the place of that face-to-face interview process, but, you know, in the interim, we're trying to do the best we can.
1: And there's, there's obviously a, you know, a, a wide variety of ways that issues come to your attention, whether those are through hotlines, uh, uh, or for that matter, direct conversations. And I think to your point about having that face-to-face, I think we all find that sometimes the most the things we learn that are most valuable don't happen during a formal Q&A, during an interview, but in the hallways, um, or after the interview, or just sort of in the informal setting. Uh, you mentioned the, the ethics and compliance champions, which is an issue that, that Chelsea and I talk to a lot of clients about. And we've actually seen used very well, you know, pushing down the responsibility, or maybe the better way of looking at it is empowering um, local folks who are closest to the action to uh, um, to to speak up and frankly have the obligation to speak up and responsibility speak up. Have you, have? I mean, we, we've become, I, for lack of a better term, sort of fans of that, um, of, 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 of that model for large companies that have global footprints, like frankly, like yours. In, in mm-hmm. your experience with ethics, Compliance champions, have you have you found that um, that there are ways that might be better than others in terms of empowering them, and uh, and ways of really getting the most out of them? Uh, what what are your thoughts on those? Yeah,
2: so I would I would share with you about almost ten years ago we embarked on a champion program at Molson Course. Um and at that point in time. Um, we didn't have as many locations as we as we do today, and we didn't have as many dedicated resources. So we we thought, hey, this is a great way for us to, um, you know, embed compliance and ethics in, into the culture in each of our um, business units um, to to sort of build um, a champion mentality. And we we v- envisioned it as a two year kind of. Um term that we would get somebody from within the organization. they'd work with us for two years. They'd roll off, we'd get someone else, and then we're putting people with this compliance understanding um, out into the business. Um, and, you know, I think we had um, both good and bad experiences with it. I think it was it was very much dependent on how engaged that individual was. Um, and how much support they got from their leadership in doing this. We, we of course, positioned it as a developmental opportunity. And um, I think for those who really were engaged, it worked really well, um, for others, not so much. Down the line, when we had some more dedicated resources in those regions, we've sort of gotten away from that, but I think it's something to revisit. Um, because I do think overall it, it, it can work really effectively and it can help build sort of that culture of compliance in the organization
1: and one more question from from me Carolyn which is you know earlier you talked about sort of the different modes of, of attorneys that that are maybe not the approaches that are not that helpful and maybe I'm I'm just going to paraphrase here but the one type is sort of the arrogant attorney who tells you what the answer is sort of swoops in opens the briefcase pulls out the the answer tells you what it is and then leaves and then the other kind is sort of the two-handed attorney you know on the one hand this on the other hand that but you know ultimately you have to decide and and those are obviously two different two different models when you when you when you encounter folks that that take either of those approaches um, I mean it, it, is there coming back from that in other words it, it are there ways of kind of educating them on how a company, what, what what your expectations are, reciprocal expectations in terms of approach? Or do you just sort of say, okay, that's just another one of those of that type? In other words, uh, you know, is there rehabilitation for, for those people or, or are they doomed?
2: I think so. And it depends on their willingness to take feedback and, and make changes because I think, what i've seen in my career is is the folks that are most effective are the ones that really feel like business partners. So you you work with them closely, they feel like an extension of your company and you know there's feedback in both directions, you know, we need to take feedback from them, they need to take feedback from us and and we all do that coming from a place of good intent and wanting to build that relationship and do what's right for the organization. I think if you know if, if we provide that feedback and and somebody you know genuinely listens and and adjusts accordingly or at least engages in a in a productive back and forth about it then yeah i mean there's an opportunity there if if they're not willing to to listen and and to at least you know meet us halfway then maybe not. And maybe that means they're not the right fit for our company. Um, so I think, you know, it really depends on the culture of your organization as well. At, at Molson Coors, it's very collaborative, very collegiate kind of environment. Um, and, and we expect anybody we work with to kind of fit that. Um, and so the people who are going to be successful with us are going to be you know the ones that are comfortable in that kind of a relationship
1: and you folks on the in-house side really can offer us a lot i, I remember it's one of my favorite stories a, a very good friend uh, at a um at a very large company when i first started working for them and i had just left the government we had a board meeting, and of course, I thought, well, you know, they want the fount of knowledge here to just hold forth and let them know what's what and what their risks are. And at the end of the, uh, at the call, and again, this is a large board of a large company, and it was my first time, I think, speaking to a board, um, uh, and it was, there were no visual cues. It was by phone. Um, and at the end of the call, he said, hey, Marcus, you know, I think you're really great, but and, and this will ring true to anyone who knows me, uh, but you talk too much you got to you've just got to talk less and listen more <laughs> and and unfortunately in, in most parts of my life I probably have not taken that to heart as much as I should have but but that was a really important bit of honest and frankly a little bit painful to hear feedback but uh but we have a lot to learn from uh, from people on the in-house side, because again, we have the benefit of seeing a lot of different companies. So we have views of what companies do right or wrong and what might be helpful to a particular company they didn't necessarily think about. On the other hand, you guys have uh, you know, v- access to and, and, and have interactions with just a huge variety of service providers, including attorneys. And so it's really good for us to frankly hear, you know, sometimes over beer or sometimes just on the phone call, Things that we can be doing better Uh, uh, and and again with Chelsea she doesn't have that issue because she doesn't do as many things incorrectly as I do but I've always (laughs) found this to be really helpful.
2: Well and the over a beer thing has always been our our approach obviously because (laughs) you come to our office and and we can have that discussion over a beer at the end of the day and I do think that's that's helped in some ways, but yeah.
0: Well, and I know we are uh, kind of nearing the end of our time here today, so I want to I want to make sure that we have a chance to address any sort of parting thoughts you may have, Carolyn, um, on you know how outside counsel can can help with an investigative process or just help be a, a good service provider to your company. Um, so I will I will turn it over to you for any final thoughts.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I've talked a lot about this, but I think that really truly being that business partner um that we can turn to for all kinds of issues nothing's too small and you know i mean i've reached out and said hey can you take a look at this policy language that we're considering and give us your feedback or you know can you come and meet with my team and share your experiences and and you know having um an attorney or or a group that's willing to do that means the world to me because then I know you know you're you're helping us to be better, um, and you're not just waiting for kind of the big, you know, problem um, where we need to turn to you in an emergency. The other thing, and I, we didn't touch on this, but this is something else that I think um, really builds credibility um, with outside counsel if 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 we're facing a challenging situation and you are really thinking about the business's view. You're not just saying, hey, we need this, you know, Cadillac kind of process um, when we could maybe do with a Subaru. Um, I think, you know, being conscious of that, um, making recommendations that take that into consideration. I think that means a lot. You know, you're not just looking to bill us as much as you can possibly bill us, but to do what makes sense in the situation. That, that to me engenders trust that going forward, I'm going to feel really comfortable turning to you. Um, I think that's again, in, in that candor both ways, you know, being open and honest about those kinds of issues, scope issues, um, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and being able to have that that dialogue, I think, is incredibly important and um, goes a long way with those of us who are on the inside.
1: Well, Carolyn, you're awesome. We really, really appreciate everything you do, not just for the company, but also in the community. And we know you teach, we know you you provide feedback in forums like this. It's just so valuable to people, uh, particularly people who are, are beginning in their voyage in, in white collar and in compliance, but also to people like us. And we have uh, really enjoyed working with you over the years and it's been a, a tremendous privilege for us. And we are super psyched that you are our first guest on the white collar briefly mini pod so thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights sharing your thoughts uh, with us and with our listeners
2: well thank you it was a lot of fun and i'm sure it'll be quite successful going forward this
0: concludes this episode of white collar briefly please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics White Collar Briefly of Perkins Cooey Minipod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Cooey LLP. Thank you for listening.